Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This is The Gay Life on KSAM. And it's time for our regular weekly visit with Supervisor Harry Britt at his City Hall office. Good morning, Harry. Good morning, Randy. So here we are. It's uh, nearly the end of November. It's a full two years since those events which drastically altered San Francisco politics. We've elected a Republican president. We have a Republican Senate coming up in Washington, D.C. We have a citywide board of supervisors instead of a district board for the first time in three years. Where do you see gay politics going? Where is it now? What's going to happen next? 
There has been some concern that the city might be spending some money here that property should be spent by other levels of government. I think people should recognize that, that quite the contrary is true. As I just said, we, we realized from a mounting um, body of evidence that AIDS appears to be a sexually transmitted disease. The widespread misunderstanding that coming into contact with people who have AIDS does something bad to you and places you at risk must be dealt with. We're fighting for our physical lives, but we're also fighting for our political and social lives against the homophobes in Washington. History is going to demand so much of lesbian women in the next year. Testing for the AIDS virus. Should we be tested or not? The people whose lives the system is listening to these days are the wealthy the so-called mainstream of American life. I do not believe that George Moscone would have denied the reality of homophobic violence the way Dianne Feinstein has. We miss him very much. The denial of a worker's right to use his or her employment as a way of protecting loved ones, of taking care of things like health. And I want to tell you, in a Ronald Reagan world, we have an incredible responsibility. I'm Will Roscoe, and this is Give Him Hell Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. Episode 5, Epicenter. By 1982, Harry Britt has hit his stride. He has won rent control, created a police oversight office, and crafted policies that preserve neighborhoods. That's why, when you visit Castro Street, you don't see a Costco. He's also learning how to turn his shortcomings into advantages. He hates confrontation, so he listens. Ever the Southern gentleman, he speaks with patience. As his friend and former aide, Tim Wolfred, told me, people sensed his vulnerability, and that made him more approachable. And he gives good speeches. There was no doubt he was a preacher when he spoke on a subject he cared about and started rocking back and forth on his feet. But that year, the fog that rolls in contains something deadly and awful. Before it lifts, 20,000 San Franciscans, most of them gay men, will be dead. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the epidemic. Um, <clears throat> after all, it's almost like the, it's always the elephant in the room. Oh, God. It's the room. It's the room, yeah. <laughs> I've got some memory prodders marked here, um, but maybe just start with how it came into your consciousness. Uh, that's easy to remember. Let me, in, in terms of the evolution of the queer political movement, now obviously the HIV epidemic was about human beings suffering and dying, and I don't want to make it about politics, but in terms of the politics, to me it was a test of and a, and a real triumph for Harvey Milk. Uh, because Harvey was a reality politician. He wasn't interested in 
uh, rhetoric. He wasn't interested in, in liberal uh, platitudes. He wasn't interested in moralities. He was interested in looking at what's real and how does that affect people and how can we change it. And most of the time he saw all of that other stuff as uh, obstacles to be overcome. And of course the main reality that in my increasingly in reflections on Harvey was the reality of dying, the, rea the reality of mortality, what it means to be a human being, that it doesn't mean to be engaged in a contest on whether you're going to hell or to heaven, that it, it doesn't mean to be engaged in, in a moral struggle as to be whether a good person or a bad person. Um, what it means to be human is that there was a time when you didn't exist and there will be another time when you will not exist and in the meantime you have this moment and you're connected with life not just your own but other people and you have a chance to interact with life in ways that support life uh, and there are enormous obstacles um, economic of course big time but also head trips that that paralyze particularly people like us who are not part of the mainstream history. So what happened with HIV in that context was that all of a sudden young men, it was mostly men, young men lived in a daily consciousness of dying. Um, which a lot of old people have done for centuries, but when you're old, there's not as much you can do about it. <laughs> you know? If you get that awareness when you're young and you see death with your friends and anticipate your, the high probability of your own death, it, it redefines what it means to be a human being. And particularly if you're, if you're a member of a target population for the virus, um, it, it, it was, in a way, our holocaust. It was, again, in terms of Harvey being a holocaust survivor, this is what the holocaust meant to Jews, was that don't take it for granted you're going to be alive tomorrow. And, you know, you have to live right now and, and be what you're going to be. And to me, HIV forced that on us. Harvey tried to get it into our consciousness and had some success, but not unlimited success. HIV just reached into liberal and conservative and radical young men and said, this is your life. With all of the horrors of the HIV epidemic, that was important. And the, the response to the HIV epidemic was so extraordinary not a hundred percent that doesn't happen in this world but it was just constantly on a daily basis I was just blown away by young people who seemed to be living the you know the easy life no responsibilities let's just go out and play who showed true heroism true love, true wisdom, uh, I cried a lot in the face of that.
The first cases show up in 1980. Patients are coming to doctors with rare illnesses, a lung infection called pneumocystis, a skin cancer normally affecting only elderly Jewish men. There seems to be a common denominator. All of these patients are gay. The numbers are still low, just 132 cases in San Francisco by the end of 1982. The occasional notices in the gay press are curious, but not alarming. Behind the scenes, doctors and researchers are putting the pieces together. And they're alarmed, very alarmed. This isn't gay cancer. It isn't caused by poppers, the fumes gay men inhale to heighten orgasm. It isn't caused by a quote-unquote lifestyle. It's caused by a virus, they were sure, although it has yet to be isolated. It's contagious. And it's fatal. For Harry, the magnitude of the looming crisis comes into focus in early 1983, when Dr. Andrew Moss, an epidemiologist, came to his office with the results of an unpublished study. The numbers are shocking. An estimated 20% of San Francisco's gay men are already infected. I've often wondered, what would it have been like to be in Harry's position at that moment? To walk down Castro Street that night, knowing that half of the men you see will be sick or dead in a few years. And it's your job to tell them what was coming. Just before the HIV epidemic, or at the very beginning of it, I had convened uh, a committee of the leaders of the arts, the lesbian gay arts world. Um, John Sims from the band, Alan Estes from Theater Rhinoceros, and a large number. We had about, about a dozen people. It was, I didn't want a huge group to strategize about funding issues and you know, real estate issues and generally what can I do at City Hall to support the gay arts community, lesbian gay arts community. And we quit having those meetings because they all died. It was, it was like that. It, it wasn't just that so many people were dying, but people that we depended on for leadership against the epidemic were dying, like Bill Krauss and so many others. And that sort of fed, lended to the CIA theory for me, that they not only were killing us all, but they were singling out people who were very important uh, in the leadership of the community. God, it was horrible. Um, so, I... The way I found out about it, there was a doctor named Moss, Lawrence Moss, I think it's Lawrence Moss, who came to my office and told me about it. I don't know when that was, it's probably in, in Randy's book, but um, we immediately at, uh, we immediately 
convened a meeting at the home of a, a very supportive woman named Leah Belli. In March 1983, doctors and researchers from the University of California and the San Francisco Health Department begged Harry to convene a meeting of leaders from across the spectrum of the LGBTQ community. They meet in the Pacific Heights mansion of a wealthy liberal activist. The views are breathtaking. So is the message the doctors give them. It was at the Belli home, Pacific Heights, a beautiful home with a very large, it was a very large room, living room, family room. It's a big room, much bigger than my apartment. And uh, we invited everybody that was in a position to communicate this to the community. Politic, you know, gay Republicans and religious groups and uh, sports people and arts people, everyone. You know, it was a quick, we, a hastily called meeting, but we, we, we didn't mean to exclude anyone who, who had any credibility in the community. So it was interesting. There were a lot of people who, had, who, who made little speeches at that meeting. Uh, I don't remember that I made one. I may have. I, I don't remember. Um, but it was interesting. You could almost predict who was going to say what. From because to me, the the response that people made to the AIDS epidemic was reflective of of where they were in dealing with homophobia. And there was one guy whose name I will not mention who was a fairly big deal gay activist um, from one of the religious organizations who was just terrified, who's, who gave this amazing speech about how we must not let anyone find out about this. If they find out about this, there'll be a backlash, it'll be awful. Now, that was hard for me to identify with, but I could understand it. When, when you've really taken that religious alternative of let's just try to trust that things will work out. Uh, but he was not typical. Uh, no one was mad at anybody yet because it was too new. There wasn't any, uh, everybody wanted to know and we've got to do something, but nobody knew, nobody had any idea what to do. Um, we could, we, there wasn't a way to keep, to keep it secret if we'd wanted to, but to just put it out there with no, just say there's a very good chance you're all going to die. Is that you know you do that? We, that's the message that we had to put out. But God, I hated doing it. Um, but even from the very beginning, the meeting at that meeting, I, I don't remember too much about the details, but the overwhelming response was okay. We're going to figure this out, and we're going to beat it. That that was the that was the Harvey Milk response, and that was good. When Carol Ruth Silver, a fellow supervisor and an LGBTQ ally, blurts out that the health department should close gay bathhouses, she's booed into silence. Harry is at the center of an epicenter. 
As the leading representative of the LGBTQ community, public health officials, doctors, community members, the mayor and the board of supervisors are turning to him. And the nation is watching. The to-do list is overwhelming. As one of his assistants recalled, AIDS became a daily terror in the office. Hospitals and doctors are turning AIDS patients away. The public health department has to be pressured to roll out an education campaign. People diagnosed with HIV-AIDS can't get health insurance because they have a pre-existing condition. They're being fired and evicted. They don't qualify for disability. Without families, a new kind of safety net has to be created to provide home care, meals, emotional support, and hospice. And don't forget, this is the Reagan administration. As long as the disease is killing gay men and people of color, national leaders and health officials shrug and look away. The fundamentalists are demanding that gays be quarantined. In California, they put it on the ballot. How do you convince gay men they need to change their sexual behavior? People were talking about poppers and certainly about sex. I had, we wanted it to be the poppers. That, that would have made it a lot easier to deal with. Because giving up sex and giving up poppers are two entirely different things. Um, so we tried, you know, give up everything, you know. <laughs> Something you give up might be the right thing to give up. And that was a hell of a message uh, to put out there. But we gradually did get some information, uh, or at least some theories that made more sense than other theories. And, and poppers were fairly easy to rule out yeah. just from the, the facts. The fact that, that drug use was doing it, or was a high, there was a hard, high correspondence of drug use, was very confusing to me. Um, not that the CIA can't push drugs too. Uh, I'm sure they do. And I had like I, I, I was called upon to address a, a meeting of emergency room physicians. A lot of them, like a hundred at least, and talk to them because they were concerned that they were all going to die because there's blood all over the place in an emergency room. And that was one of the tougher, tougher speeches I ever gave in my life because I didn't know at that point in time. Uh, the doctors I talked to that were my friends didn't know what to say to them. But they were great, at least to my face, they were great. And, and I got a sense that there was not, that a, a, a gay person uh, who was bleeding in an emergency room in San Francisco had a pretty good, decent shot at being treated. Um, Chris Perry worked in an emergency room at Kaiser. And, and then the other part of my job was lobbying, of course, which also was hard early on because we weren't quite clear what to do with money if we had it. Uh, I put together the city the first AIDS package that we put together, Dana Van Gorder, who was working for me at the time, really, he did a, 
he just talked. He, he, he talked to as many of the AIDS organizations as he could find, and basically, what do you need? And we put them all in the package. And Diane signed it, and, but it was still, it was just a few million dollars. And we didn't really know where to go from there. And within two to three years, of course, I remember a meeting up at California Hall that was, it was like the Super Bowl. There were so many, it was, it was a meeting of representatives of AIDS organizations. And there were so <laughs> many organizations. It was just, it was, it was good, but it was also a little depressing because you knew this wasn't the way to do it. There, there had to be more of a system to delivery. And then there was always the, a little bit of, well, more than a little bit of, of conflict between community activists, the Department of Public Health, and the doctors. Because, you know, they each had a different approach to how to do this, and there was a limited amount of funding, and most of them, most of it was okay. Most of it was very, very good. But things would come up where the community didn't trust the, the health department, or particularly maybe Dr. Silverman. Unity in San Francisco's queer community is like fairy dust. It quickly melts away. The community was not united in supporting Harvey Milk, although it was united in grieving his loss. But HIV-AIDS opens up fault lines we didn't know existed. This is The Gay Life, KSAN's public affairs show for gentlemen who prefer gentlemen, for women who prefer women, and for people who prefer people. You don't have to be gay to listen. Good morning, I'm Randy Alford, and this morning on The Gay Life, we begin our three-part coverage of a panel discussion on AIDS and the bathhouses. Sitting next to Steve is Ed Power, who's the director of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and on the end is Supervisor Harry Britt. I believe, um, Ed, you want to do begin. Is that correct? Okay, so let me pass the microphone. Ever since the beginning of the AIDS crisis, when we first realized that this was a sexually transmitted disease, the issue of what role the bathhouses played in the spread of the disease and what role that they could play in limiting the spread of the disease has been a hot topic for all of us. And I think that's the major reason that we've all come here tonight and the issue that we want to discuss. One approach says that what we want to do I think I need a new prescription in my glasses. One approach says that, that what we want to do is we want to get people to stop having sex. That's a, an extremely large statement to make. For one thing, it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, if you look at the example of cigarette smoking in our country right now, we've had an educational campaign going for years that has been trying to convince people to stop smoking. 47% of American adults still smoke we realize that we're talking about giving up an essential part of our, our very existence. Sexuality, not just in theory, but in its expression, in its practice, I believe is an essential part of a person being a human being and being alive. The second approach to limiting the spread of AIDS 
is to discover new ways of having sex that aren't going to put us at risk of contracting AIDS or of contracting any other sexually transmitted diseases. To get people to change, to get people to give up sexual practices that are very pleasurable, that we like very much, it's important that we not forget that along with the carrot, it's important to have the stick. It's important to let people know that AIDS is not the common cold. AIDS is a terrible disease that kills people in a horrible way. What you have to do is you have to offer them the alternatives. You have to make sure they know that they can take that fear, that anxiety they're feeling, and translate that into a safer sexual lifestyle that will protect them from the thing that they're afraid of. With this sort of overarching philosophical approach, I think then we can better address the issue of the baths. And it's real important that we're talking about the ways that we can most effectively use, or if someone has that opinion, close down these establishments to limit the spread of AIDS. Some people have said that regardless of these arguments, a statement would be made by closing the bathhouses, by closing the sex clubs, by, by taking some sort of drastic political action like that. A statement would be made that would say to people, it's time for you to really examine your lifestyles and change your lifestyles. I believe in the sincerity of most people who say that, but I don't believe they're correct. Next, you'll hear San Francisco Supervisor Harry Britt. There simply must be, for our survival, some very basic changes in the way we conduct our sexual activity. That involves, as, as Sal said, uh, random, multiple, anonymous sexual partners, and certainly involves the exchange of body fluids. That is such an obvious message and most of us have heard it, most of us have responded to it, as people should respond to it. Unfortunately, a lot of gay men have trouble hearing that message because there's another message that seems to come through when you talk about saving people's lives through changing basic sexual patterns. And that is the message that all of us has heard since we were old enough to hear anything, namely that whatever we want to do that seems to give us pleasure must be bad and that somebody is going to say no to us at every point down the road. It has obviously been a very basic part of our experience as gay people to refute that message, to say no back to that no as loud as we possibly can. When, when Governor Duke Majin vetoes AB1, he's doing that because there is still out there a moralistic message that being homosexual is wrong and that anything that comes out of that is wrong and it is no less important that we fight that moralistic message make the statement that sexual pleasure is fantastic and wonderful and great as, as strongly as we have ever done it. But the thing is that these gay doctors who are telling us to make basic sexual changes are not moralistic, they are not homophobic, they are simply trying to save our lives. And it becomes a test of our maturity as a community to sort out those two messages, to continue to fight for and believe in the absolute beauty of sexual pleasure, and to oppose every effort to inhibit it on moralistic grounds, and yet to respond as intelligent adults to a medical message that comes to us and says, if you want to survive, you've got to make some changes. One thing that I, I'm not going to argue with Sal, I'm sorry he's so defensive, but I do want to deal with the issue 
of toning down the urgency of the AIDS crisis so straight people will like us. We cannot do that. As long as I have been in gay politics, there are people who want to tone down Sister Boom Boom or tone down the leather people or tone down something or other so that straight people will like us. The very basic principle of gay liberation is you let the world see the truth about the gay community. We do not move forward by deceit, by covering up, by portraying ourselves as anything other than what we are. Our strength and what is going to prevent us from all being put in concentration camps is not our ability to paint a pretty picture of ourselves. It is the extraordinary work that thousands and thousands of lesbians and gay men have done in politics, in business, in the media, all over the country, letting the world see the truth about lesbians and gay men. We owe it to every gay man who is potentially vulnerable to AIDS to make sure that he gets the full, honest facts about this disease. That doesn't mean we scare them to death. But I do not want any of my friends to die because I have been afraid to tell them the truth about AIDS, lest some straight person might not be able to deal with that truth. You know, it is a simple enough thing to say that where you have sex doesn't make any difference, that you can have it in the bushes, you can have it in your bedroom, you can have it in the, in the bathhouses, and it doesn't matter. The important thing is what kind of sex you have. That's true, and it is obvious. But it's also a little naive, I think. Uh, I've been to baths, I've been to bars. Many of you have been to baths and have been to bars. You know there's a difference between going to a bathhouse and going to a bar and going to the glory holes, etc., etc., and going to the bushes. There are different patterns of sexual behavior that have historically taken place in these various places, and I don't think you need me to rattle off exactly how those things work. I have no interest in closing the bathhouses. I do have very basic interests in seeing those patterns of sexual behavior change. And I think the enormous burden of responsibility on people who want to make a, a living by operating a, a place where gay men gather for sex to make sure that changes are taking place within those environments. Because if they are not, all of us who have sex with gay men who may have been to a bathhouse are part of this continually mounting change. So I am committed, very strongly committed, because I hear the doctors telling me to be committed to doing what we as a community have to do to help our brothers move from sexual behavior that is deadly, indeed deadly, Sal, to sexuality that is fun, 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 and doesn't kill people. To close down the bathhouses would be an extraordinarily simplistic and counterproductive way of achieving that goal. I don't know anyone who disagrees with that. Finally, you know, I guess we're all going to resist the temptation to just sit up here and talk about how awful AIDS is. Uh, we don't need to do that. You wouldn't be here unless you cared a great deal. But to know one person who is going through or has gone through the experience of dealing with their own death at the age of a lot of the guys we're talking about is the greatest deterrent that I know to engaging in the kind of sexual practice we're talking about. That is happening in my life and in your life to a lot of our friends. And that, you know, the part of the AIDS message that I do want to get out to, to the straight world 
is not all heck the disease isn't as bad as everybody says it is. That's crap. But I want the world to see what we are seeing of one another when we go to these memorial services for people like Mark Bellman and Gary Walsh and Paul Dague, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want them to see the way gay men are dealing with their mortality and the way lesbians are responding to that mortality. And I want them to see the support groups and the support strategies that are developing within our community. That's a part of the AIDS message. And I happen to think that has as much to do with being gay as the sexual liberation that we all value so highly. So as we do our AIDS message, let's not just talk about the sex. Let's talk about each other and, and what's happening in our community as we learn to deal with this terrible, terrible thing. That was San Francisco Supervisor Harry Britt. This is The Gay Life on KSAN. Bathhouses and sex clubs were one of the city's naughty delights. In the 1970s, they had sprung up everywhere and catered to everything. The largest, the club baths on Howard Street, could accommodate up to 800 randy men in a night. A few blocks away, at Club San Francisco, I met my future partner, Brad, a fawn-like towelboy working at the front desk. Gay men had fought long and hard for bars and baths. Until 1975, sodomy had been illegal in California. Now, just as we won the right to have sex, our sexuality is being stigmatized again. The bathhouses are a political third rail. Anything like government regulation of gay sex is dead on arrival. Just posting signs at the sex clubs triggers a backlash. The Toklas Club declares it to be a direct attack on the social and economic viability of our community. If the bathhouses are closed, the entire community could be put on lockdown. Somewhat more convincing is the argument that what is needed is education. I was in that camp. Leave the bathhouses open and do the education there. What I didn't know is how irresponsible the people who owned the bathhouses were. Uh, yeah, my name is Bill Jones, and I own the Stitcher Bathhouse. Um, I'm going to direct this directly to Harry Britt. Um, I have a great many feelings, I guess, about this meeting, as many of you do. Uh, one thing I would like to say is that I know some of the men here who own bathhouses, Sal and Glenda's good friend of mine, Dale. I think that they feel, as I do, that if it was proven to us that bathhouses were the source of AIDS, we would march out of this room and go to our bathhouses and padlock them. I know I would, for one. Now, what I would like to know is where you get off being the supervisor of this city last May, saying, quoted, you were quoted in the Chronicle as saying, anyone would be crazy going to a bathhouse. I asked you personally about this at the Warfield Theater in front of the candy counter. And you said to me, no, that you had not said it. Since then, you've been quoted twice in the Chronicle. February 3rd, you said, Supervisor, Supervisor Harry Britt, the city's most prominent gay public official, said that he was extremely frustrated that gay men would still risk their lives by going to bathhouses and sex clubs. It was followed up by another article written by the same reporter. Right. 
saying sexual activity in places like baths or sex clubs should no longer be associated with pleasure. It, would be a, it should be associated with death. We need a new style of educational campaign. And as usual, I thought, well, you'd use the politician's way out and explain your way out. So I phoned the reporter. He said, yes, you did say it, and there was a witness there, even though he doesn't have tapes. I think that that kind of talk from an official and from a gay person is extending the homophobia that we're feeling. And I really resent it very strongly. Well, Bill, we've had this conversation before. I don't know what else to say. Randy Schultz very much wants somebody to say the bathhouses should be shut down, and he's trying very hard to find someone to say that. I have not said it, and I'm not going to say it. We, in the particular interview that you were talking about, I spent the better part of an hour trying to convince him that we should talk about sexual practices not where they take place. Uh, I did not say that people are crazy to go to bathhouses. I said people are crazy to engage in the kind of sex that we were talking about. That happens to be what I believed then. It's what I believe now. Uh, I am not shy about saying what I think, as you very well know. Uh, Mr. Schiltz does not carry a tape recorder. He writes down about every 25th word. He then fits those into whatever thesis he has laid out. If you read his nice little piece in the Chronicle yesterday uh, about the leather bars, which I think that told you an awful lot about the way he works and what his motives are, and I'm sorry, Randy is my friend a large part of the time, but on this particular issue, he is trying to get the community to divide around this issue. He is trying to get out the message that there's a great big plot going on that I'm somehow involved in to shut down the bathhouses. I think anyone who risks their life when they're in possession of good information and goes ahead and sticks their hand in the fire, there's something funny there. I, I just really believe that my training in psychology is if I know that the bottle has poison written on it, I don't drink out of the bottle. I'm saying what I'm saying now. I think people who engage in sexual practices that everybody in the medical community says puts you at high risk are doing something very that, that requires some attention, whether they do it in the bathhouses, the bushes, or in their bedrooms. That's all I said to Randy. That's all I'm saying now, and that's all I'll say a year from now. Bill, As the battle lines are drawn, Harry and the activists in the Harvey Milk Democratic Club will find themselves on one side. Nearly everyone else was on the other. Publicly, Harry says that the community needs to be talking about sexual practices, not where they occur. If bathhouses are closed, gay men will find somewhere else to have unsafe sex. Harry's former aide, Bill Krause, leads efforts to convince the spa owners to post safe sex guidelines and hand out flyers. But they will have nothing to do with it. And it isn't just the bathhouses. It's the bars and restaurants and shops and the newspapers that depend on their advertising dollars. The medical experts consider bathhouses super-spreader events but the public health officials aren't willing to publicly call for their closure. Mayor Feinstein wants them closed, but if she takes action, it will unleash a firestorm. The community is still furious at her for vetoing domestic partnerships. We'll get to that later. 
As the months wear on, Harry becomes convinced there is no other choice but to close the baths. It, as we, it became obvious fairly early on that the bathhouses were helping the spread of the epidemic. I, I, I couldn't, you know, couldn't prove that, but there wasn't any doubt in my mind. Bill Krause was passionately, let's go in and burn them down if we have to, whatever. Um, I had a meeting. I wasn't in favor of burning them down, but I, I was in favor of closing them. Um, I had a meeting at what was, I'm sure, a place you remember called the 1808 Club on uh, Market Street, uh, very close to the LGBT Center. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm reminded now with the the healthcare debate where you've got the argument for government interfering in our freedom when the only freedom they're interfering with is the freedom of the insurance company to maximize their profits. <laughs> uh, I met with the, the bathhouse owners and other the tavern deal, but mainly the bathhouse at the 1808 club. and. Uh, their, their lawyer was there, who was a, a very good friend of mine and a wonderful gay lawyer, and I'm not going to mention his name because I was sad to see him there, but they, they were all over me, um, homophobic, the whole deal. And uh, it was very clear to me, there was nothing I could say. And they were, they were, they were handing me this garbage about how they, all of their all of their people were getting educated about what was, you know, that it was not, it was safe because they, the safest people are the ones who come to our club because we could be sure they are all educated and know what they can do and what they can't do. Now, I know that was not true. Absolutely know that was not true. A glory hole is a glory hole is a glory hole. <laughs> At the height of the controversy, the Bay Area Reporter publishes an editorial 16 people who had signed a call to close the sex clubs have killed the movement. Their names are listed in order of the degree of their betrayal. It becomes known as the traitor's list. The first name on it is Harry Britt. Good morning. I'm Randy Alfred, and later in this morning's show will be portions of the debate of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors on May 23rd on a resolution asking the mayor to appropriate $2.1 million in AIDS-related services in the city and county of San Francisco. AIDS is Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, the mysterious and often deadly disease which has been striking gay men, Haitian immigrants, intravenous drug abusers, and hemophiliacs. The only issue that we are asking the committee to respond to is the issue of what is the appropriate level of response for the city and county of San Francisco to make to this medical emergency. San Francisco has already done more than any other city in the country to respond to the AIDS crisis. I don't think we can pat ourselves on the heads too much, however, as long as 
the situation is as serious as it is and as there is much pain and concern in our community as there is. Now all paths lead to the director of the San Francisco Public Health Department, Dr. Mervyn Silverman. Through 1983 and 1984, he waffles. How can he serve a community with a public health crisis if the community hates him? How can he close businesses for spreading a virus when the virus is yet to be isolated? He asks Mayor Feinstein to order him to close the baths. She lacks the authority. He wants Harry Britt to pass a law. Bill Krauss was never totally happy with me. Um, I was very much convinced the bathhouses should be closed. And I had more than one meeting with Dr. Silverman, um, uh, at which he said they needed to be closed, and he wanted me to close them. And I, in my mind, it was very clear that a, leg a legislative body does not close gay establishments. That's just a, as gay rights, that's just a fundamental thing to me. So I said, Silverman, if you're the health guy, if, if the Department of Public Health tells me something that I already know, that these are contributing to the epidemic, I will be totally supportive of you and will stand there with you and say, okay, the health department says we're all going to die if we don't do something here, let's do it. He wouldn't do that. He wanted me to do it. Now, I've never shied away from doing stuff that makes people mad, but I was not going to be the gay man who closes the bathhouses uh, when it's a public health issue, and so I wouldn't. I, and it was quite, very clear that Silverman wasn't going to do it. Uh, I think later on he became a little more assertive in that respect. Ultimately, the community did take, you know, it, it became a lot less profitable to run a bathhouse. But um, that was that was a frustrating issue because it seemed to be, you know, the civil libertarians versus the saving people's lives people. And to me, the saving people's lives thing was the first priority, of course. But uh, I couldn't be the I couldn't be saying that it's okay for political people to shut down gay stuff. There's just too much history around that. It's Bill's crusade. Harry follows his lead. And finally, on October 9, 1984, Silverman orders 14 bathhouses and sex clubs closed. Across the spectrum, LGBTQ organizations and leaders denounce the decision. At first... Only Harry and the Harvey Milk Club stand behind it. For Bill Krauss, it was a bitter victory. Five days earlier, he had been diagnosed with HIV-AIDS. The availability of a test for HIV antibodies in 1985 is a watershed. One by one, we all get tested. I remember the day Brad came home from the health clinic and told me the news. Well, he joked, my attitude is positive too. 
He lived with HIV for 11 years before finally succumbing in 1996. There can be no denial now about how widespread the disease is. Across the city, nonprofits, political groups, cultural groups, professional groups, and the businesses begin to address the unfolding crisis. Politically, the LGBT community is still as fragile as a Fabergé egg. But when it comes to taking care of its own, it proves remarkably resilient. It will be called the San Francisco model, a social safety net of public and nonprofit services to feed, house, and care for the thousands that will die and the many more who will survive. But by the end of the decade, Harry's resiliency is beginning to unravel. Um, my role in the HIV epidemic was um, well, first of all, I, I don't like to talk about how tough the epidemic was for me because I was never zero positive and I know thousands of people who had it a hell of a lot tougher than I did. But it was tough for me because I felt an incredible amount of responsibility and did not, you know, I, it's not like I had, I had a pill I was trying to sell. There were no pills and these people were, <clears throat> wanted a lot from me and I didn't know what to do. And I, there were times when I really escaped. I would go away for the weekend and just check into a Motel 6 in Tracy or some little town in a peninsula and just get away because I knew I couldn't do this every day nonstop. I needed to just get away. Um, but what I did, um, what, my, what I saw my responsibility as being was to be a spokesperson an advocate, a media, a media person. I traveled a lot around the country. I did that anyway, but I made, you know, maybe a hundred speeches during the, about the epidemic during that time. And to let my office be an organizing center for, for the real activists who were doing, because there were so many, that so many aspects of it. Um, and, um, my guy, as you know, was Bill Krauss, who was, um, whose death was, you know, the one that was hardest for me. Bill Krauss, who had been with Harry in the Proposition 13 and No One Six campaigns, who masterminded Harvey's election and Harry's, dies in January 1986. Handsome and soft-spoken, with curly brown hair and sky-blue eyes, Everyone had a crush on Bill Krauss. And now he is gone. The impact on Harry is devastating. The AIDS epidemic was more than I could handle. I feel pretty good about how I handled it, but it wasn't because I was so great. It was because of there was so much energy and so much determination by the Bill Crosses of the world and the 
the long list of people that I was able to play my role, but the, you know, it was such a horrible thing, just unthinkable that you were having these young men die in such huge numbers so quickly, just like initially, just, you know, a few weeks they would be dead. And it, uh, it had a big effect on me. I didn't let on. I mean, you know, you couldn't, everybody was being strong and all that, but it was very hard. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm from Texas. I was involved in the civil rights movement back in the 60s. I was a Methodist minister for a major part of my life. I'm finding now, by the way, that being on the board is a lot like being a minister in the sense that you spend your time listening to people and finding out what their problems are and that politics really comes down to determining what people are interested in and helping them get those things. Earlier, you mentioned that Mayor Feinstein vetoed domestic partnerships, which was an idea that was very different from traditional marriage. How did the idea for domestic partnerships come about, and how was that intimately related to the AIDS epidemic going on? They started to work on it in Berkeley and advance it there, and um, there was also a case that um, drew a lot of attention to it of a guy who was a union guy at the uh, Southern Pacific Railroad who had his partner died, and he put in to get the grievance leave that was part of the union contract, and they would not give it to him because it was not a family member. And that really brought it home. The one other thing that really brought it home by the mid-1980s was the pandemic. And people with life partners were unable to visit them uh, in the hospital sometimes, Families came in and took over. Uh, they might have shared a home or possessions. The families could take them. Uh, they couldn't get um, bereavement leave. And so that really created a lot of community energy around domestic partners. It meant a, it meant a lot. It's Valentine's Day, 2004 and I'm standing beneath the ornate rotunda in San Francisco's City Hall, surrounded by hundreds of same-sex couples. They're on the grand staircase, in the alcoves, on the balconies. Men and men, women and women, in jeans and t-shirts, sailor suits and leather, wedding dresses and tuxes, and they're all exchanging marriage vows. Years ago, I had stood in this very spot my face streaked with tears, filing past the caskets of Harvey Milk and George Moscone. But today, I'm crying tears of joy. In defiance of state law, Mayor Gavin Newsom has ordered the city registrar to grant marriage licenses to all couples, regardless of gender. And the lid is off. I doubt that many people that day knew that 13 years earlier, there had been a similar celebration on Valentine's Day. 
joyful same-sex couples on the steps of City Hall, lining up to become the first to register as domestic partners. When Harry takes on the issue of domestic partnerships, same-sex couples have no legal rights. As far as the law is concerned, they don't exist. If your partner goes to the hospital, you can't visit him. If he dies, you can't take time off from work to grieve. This is what happens to Larry Brinken when his partner of 11 years dies in 1981. He's a union worker at Southern Pacific Railroad, and the union contract says that workers can take three paid days off if a family member dies. But the legal department denies Larry's request. Family members could be a spouse, a mother, a father, a sister, brother, children, stepfather, stepmother, mother-in-law, or father-in-law. But if your partner in life is the same sex as you, too bad. Get back to work. Larry Brickens' case gets a lot of publicity, at least in the queer press. He goes to Matt Coles, a gay civil rights attorney, and Matt goes to Harry. Domestic partnership is the forgotten stepchild of same-sex marriage. It provides a way for same-sex couples, and straight couples who choose not to marry, to officially register their relationship. If one partner works for the city, the other can receive benefits as a family member. Some companies are happy to extend benefits to the partners of their lesbian and gay employees. Domestic partners have hospital visitation rights. Admittedly, it's a poor substitute for the banquet of benefits legal marriage bestows. But Harry devotes nearly a decade of his life to the fight for domestic partnerships. It's a lot of effort for a modest gain, but what's important is how it's won. This issue was raised because of lesbians and gay men who are in significant long-term relationships but who are finding that though they work the same number of hours, supposedly for the same pay as everyone else, that they are not entitled to all of those benefits that other public employees are entitled to. In 1982, Harry's domestic partner ordinance easily passes the Board of Supervisors. But then the opposition comes roaring out of the woodwork. Domestic partnerships are an assault on the sanctity of marriage. They call it the live-in lover law. Diane, Harry recalled, likes couples better than promiscuity, and she believes in fairness. But after the city's Catholic archbishop, the Episcopal bishop, and her rabbi have a word with her, she vetoes Harry's law. Dear ladies and gentlemen, I am returning your ordinance number 257-82-4, the domestic partners legislation, with my veto not in reaction to any lifestyle, but because the legislation is unclear in its intent and imprecise in its application. It neither defines its purpose or makes clear how it can be administered. Consequently, because of its very vagueness, it becomes the instrument of division and dissent in this city because it's interpreted differently by different people in a city whose pull should be toward togetherness and unity. Is it fair to say that it's reference to marriage in, in the way this bill was constructed, it set up a kind of new 
state relationship in place of merit, is that a problem for you? Well, there are a number of things that are a problem. One is um, it's reaching toward the health service system when it doesn't have a right to impact that system by ordinance. That's a problem for me. The queer community never forgives her. There has developed a sad tradition that we gather on the steps of City Hall to express our dismay and our displeasure and to express our sadness in community and with each other. That is why we are here today, for a sad thing has happened. Our mayor has... Punks call her Di-Fi and the Ayatollah Feinstein. When Sister Boom Boom from the drag nun troupe The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence runs for supervisor, his campaign flyers feature a husky nun riding a broomstick and skywriting Surrender Diane above City Hall. He wins more than 23,000 votes. Now, it so happens that at this time, a pro-gun fringe group called, this is true, the White Panthers, is circulating a petition to recall Feinstein for her support of gun control. Suddenly, queers are grabbing the clipboards out of their hands to sign the petitions. The recall is defeated by a landslide. Feinstein consolidates her power. As all this is unfolding, Harry Britt falls in love. His name is Brian, and he's a graduate student at Berkeley. They had spotted each other at meetings of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club. And one night, outside the Elephant Walk bar, they exchange numbers. Before long, they exchange keys to each other's apartments. Harry gives Brian a purple and pink bathrobe and a box of Godiva chocolates. Brian writes love poems. It's one of the few romantic relationships in Harry's life. And just as the romance is heating up, Diane Feinstein vetoes the legislation that would have recognized their partnership. Domestic partnership is a zombie issue. It dies and rises and dies and rises again. In 1989, a new mayor finally signs it into law. The same day, the signatures are submitted to put it on the ballot. The arguments for and against domestic partners take up 13 pages of the voter pamphlet. The churches line up against it, and domestic partnership loses. But for Harry, it's a strategic win. The right wing has signaled just how important the issue is to them, and their hatred rallies the queer community. 
So the following year, 1990, the LGBTQ community goes on the offensive. This time, they collect the signatures to put a proposition on the ballot. Harry's critics worry that another defeat would weaken the community. Harry is convinced that the votes are there. And he's right. After lots of door-to-door campaigning, domestic partnership wins with 54% of the vote. This is the high point of Harry's career. And it's his idea to have the law go into effect on Valentine's Day, 1991. Today, same-sex couples in every state could enjoy the rights and benefits of legal marriage. But those rights were won in a court ruling after 31 states had passed constitutional amendments to ban it, including California. What's important about the fight for domestic partnership in San Francisco is that it was won at the ballot box, not in a courtroom. It's what Harry calls a bottoms-up empowerment movement. Even now, same-sex marriage has been approved by popular vote in only one state, Nevada. At the time of our conversations in 2009, same-sex marriage was dead in the water. The year before, Proposition 8, a statewide measure to prohibit same-sex marriage, appeared on the ballot in California and won. Neither of us expected same-sex marriage to become legal just a few years later. And Harry's views on gay marriage might surprise you. Harry saw domestic partnership as a way to open the door to a new kind of institution, an alternative to traditional marriage. Marriage, my son, is a sacrament. I went to church, I went to college, to church college. I know what a sacrament is. It's it's not a social justice arrangement at all. It, 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 it begins from the premise that there is a divine reality that is transcends anything about human love or anything like that. And that the church for the Catholics is the earthly presence of that sacramental reality. And the Pope has to, not just the Pope, but every Catholic who takes their religion seriously has to commit themselves to sacramental living. Now to me, we got to get rid of sacramentalism, not just in its Catholic forms, but in other forms too. So when I hear the word marriage, see, I don't have a problem if two gay people want to make a lifetime commitment or a short-term commitment or any other kind of commitment I've performed weddings with gay couples, um, but we changed the ritual really bad because in the ritual that I was given, Christ, you know, the man is the head of the household as Christ is the head of the church. That's religion. I think part of being queer is that we've had to form communities outside of the traditional communities, and that's made us a little freer still have hope that 
instead of all becoming trying to become married, we'll develop alternatives to being married that reflect our experience and not the experience of Henry VIII. And remember, we were doing domestic partners at the same during the HIV epidemic, and it was really some of the key people in that fight were people who who you know had great concerns about health insurance and great concerns about wanting to celebrate their love because they didn't expect to be together, to be alive for very long. So it, like I say, being able to throw some energy into domestic partners was a nice kind of way of being gay and being proud without having to think 24 hours a day about about but, dying. Uh, but they did connect. I mean, a lot of impetus came from getting hospital visitation rights and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Absolutely. And that was... Um, Absolutely. Let me just say, I did this in San Francisco, and my partner died in 1996. So you would think that I would have experienced the San Francisco model of AIDS. Uh, and I suppose I did, but I was never treated the way a spouse, a heterosexual spouse, is hmm. treated. When there was bad news or treatment decisions, they told Brad, and then he called me up crying to tell me. When uh, it became time, when, when his needs were going to go up five notches, I was never brought hmm. in and explained, now this is going to happen. Where, where was this? There'll be medical deliveries three times a day, three times a week. There'll be nurses every other day. You might want to sleep in another room now. None of that. It just unfolded, and where, I realized Where were you getting your care? A gay doctor. Really? And then they put him in, um, at a point, uh, they had converted Children's Hospital into skilled nursing. The skilled nursing facility, we called it the snuff. We had to joke about it because it was a dreadful experience. 30 ill that. people and two nurses. And the second night Brad was there, oh God, I hate this story. I came in and he was silent and crying in the morning. The night before, he had had diarrhea in the bed in the middle of the night, and he called the nurse, and they just flipped the switch off. And he got to sit there in his cold diarrhea for hours. That's when I started to stay in the hospital every night. And the first night I I stayed in the hospital, it happened again. You know, uh, uh, it was a long epidemic, Mm-hmm. And he couldn't stand to stay in the hospital anymore. He had to go home. It was a decision to die. And I spent the last three weeks on the phone trying to find someone to help me get the drug. While I'm looking at Brad and taking a cue from him, how much do I fight on this? But I went to three, or he said, this, this one didn't call back. This one's on vacation. This one doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Blah, 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 blah. We all have these experiences, mm-hmm. uh, and I just wanted to tie it back into the yeah. way in which domestic partners had a ground in the epidemic, and the fact that to this day, it's the recognition of the fundamental human need of a person who cares about another person getting into the hospital, I think is still one of the most most well, powerful points even of Even without the gay domestic marriage. partners, you shouldn't have got to go through any of that. Well, of course not. But we've still got a long way to go. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so to me, if there's going to be a queer movement, and I'm not sure there is right now, 
if there's going to be a queer movement, it has to say that there's something about our experience as queers that gives us an insight into something that's wrong with our culture that's beyond homophobia that needs to be changed. And for me, the most obvious and immediate thing that's wrong is the essential bigotry of American religion. The, the tragedy of our putting all of our eggs in the gay marriage basket, to me, uh, is that we're in the middle of a cultural war that's never been clearer in my lifetime than right now. And it's affecting everything. And activists have picked the one issue <laughs> on which the religious right has an appeal to everybody, the sacredness of marriage. Um, I find that stupid, strategically stupid. I also think when we did domestic partners, it, that was fundamentally uh, an effort to challenge discrimination against lesbians and gay men, because uh, you had to do that. But I think more importantly, it was an effort to begin to create models for human connections out of our experience, not out of copying somebody else's experience. I really miss the, the, the sexual liberation aspect of the 70s and in our community. And, and I don't think it's just AIDS that has gotten, that has hurt on that score. We've had that conversation before. But I'm not sure death do us part should be part of our rituals that we do with each other. Uh, maybe it should. Maybe it should be optional. Maybe well, it, it will be. A, a seven-year plan. We're, <laughs> we are. We're, we're going to transform the institution entirely. And first and foremost, we're going to reclaim it as an institution founded on love, and not social convention. And that's why we're going to save marriage for the straights. You think so? I'm very skeptical. For Harry. The institution of marriage carries with it the baggage of a religious tradition that has oppressed women and queer folk for millennia. In 1981, he tells a gay audience, you must not ever, in any kind of way, twist your gayness or twist the richness of your life experience in order to accommodate your religious history. To do that is to deny your fundamental reality as a valued human being. He's speaking to the first national convention of the Gay Atheist League. That's right. The Methodist minister is now an atheist. Having suffocated under the weight of Christian teachings on homosexuality for most of his life, he considers organized religion so profoundly invested in sexism and homophobia that it has lost any moral credibility. Whatever good the churches do, cannot outweigh the harm they cause. Harry writes an article describing why he becomes an atheist. You won't be surprised to hear that the title is How Harvey Milk Led Me to Atheism.
In the 1980s, San Francisco was the epicenter of a gruesome pandemic that took the lives of 20,000 San Franciscans. But by the end of the decade, Harry's domestic partnership legislation makes the city an epicenter of queer freedom. But I haven't told you the story of his boldest campaign. In 1987, the awkward boy from Port Arthur, Texas, the Methodist minister who became an atheist, decides to run for Congress. Next week, Episode 6, Off to the Races. Give Him Hell Harry is written and hosted by Will Roscoe. She's produced by me, Devlin Camp. You can find tons of info about this show and other Queer Serial podcasts at QueerSerial.com. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial for all sorts of images from the stories on the podcast. And for bonus episodes and lots of queer history deep dives, join me over on Patreon. You can support Queer Serial for $3 a month and get the entire backlog of bonus episodes, including the new bonus podcast, The White Knight Riot Interviews. I'm talking to rioters who were there at the White Knight Riots, which we covered in episode three. On tomorrow's bonus episode, I'm chatting with Sister Mary Media of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Her government name is Cass Brayton. Cass is not only a respected sister of San Francisco's Order of Drag Troop Nuns, but he was also at the White Knight Riots. I wasn't expecting a riot. I was expecting anger. They were um, portraying Dan White as this kind of fallen golden boy hero. He was like this heroic figure who was at the point in his narrative where he had to redeem himself. And he was being prevented from redeeming himself. So, in terms of his hero journey, it was being thwarted, right? Yes. And, by um, the evil mayor. By the evil mayor. And the e- ultra evil, yes. um, you know, faggot whispering in his ear. Yeah. I mean, the police at that time really was populated by thugs and bullies. From their perspective, they ran the town and they weren't going to be pushed around by, you know, any of these pansies. The fact that he was one of them was ultimately much more important than the horror, you know, that he had visited upon the city. I'm chatting with Cass about the riots and the fabulous archive he's organizing for the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And y'all know I love an archive. We're kind of camping nuns, but we are nuns. Mm-hmm. We are we are the thing and we're a camp of the thing. It spoke to me and spoke to a number of other people who were looking for something beyond, you know, the gay male culture of the of the period. And explore who the who the sissy was who was living inside of us. But at that gathering, we got to really have this intense Um, experience of being queer together. Mm. It was, I mean, I think of it as a giant step outside the patriarchy. Listen to that interview tomorrow on Infamous Crimes, the White Knight Riot interviews only on my Patreon. Also on my Patreon, you can listen to tons of my queer history bonus podcasts like the 1955 Boise Sex Panic series. You can dive into some of the most fun stuff that I found in my research, like some antique erotic lesbian drawings. And you can look through all sorts of homo history odds and ends. There's a link in the episode notes. It's at patreon.com slash queer serial. 
Thank you for your help preserving and sharing queer history. Were you involved in any like electoral kind of politics or anything like that? Not at all. It wasn't just a queer politics that was um, manifesting out here, but people were like creating a queer culture. There was a there was a spirituality connected to the politics yeah. and to sexuality that I found very uh, intriguing that, and resonated with me. I mean, we could all identify with Harvey because our own hero journey had been like his, mm -hmm. had been to, you know, uproot ourselves from where we were and come here and, and create a new life for ourselves. It wasn't all just uh, about politics and trying to find a place at the table through the political channels, mm -hmm. but to actually like change the culture. Hey, Kitty. Hey, Judy. You got a question for me? <laughs> I sure do. I Several. So. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Especially for this episode. All right. You met the love of your life at the baths, working as a towel boy. For the folks listening at home who have never been to one, let's talk about why the bathhouse experience can be so alluring. What mm. is it about the bathhouse? Uh, well, there was such a lid being taken off. I'd, I don't know what to attribute to. It's almost like the, the, um, the spirituality of our age was a liberation of sexuality. Uh, and, you know, we... we raised the roof, burned the house, exploded the lid, uh, and apparently were just incredibly horny. Um, <laughs> Who knew? So, uh, but the appeal for me, in particular where I met Brad, was the, uh, we called it the Rich Street Baths. It was something else. It was Club San Francisco or San Francisco Club. We called it the Rich Street Baths. <gasps> Devlin. Yes. It was glamorous. How so? Three stories in a roof. Uh... A, uh, a a cafe like a sandwich, a movie room. Wow! Oh yes, the the the, the latest Super Eight release. Oh. A jacuzzi big enough that you could do laps in it. A steam room, a sauna, a pig room. Well, that's what apparently the workers called it. Uh -huh. Brad told me, but it was like you know, a congregate sex space. Uh, was appropriate, yeah. I think that's about right. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, he told me one of the first days that he worked there, there was an announcement that said, uh, Brad, Brad, please go to the uh, 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 orgy room and clean up the melon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, so all of these, like, facilities. And I would go on a coupon and get a locker if you went in before six o'clock and then stay most of the night and so that meant i probably had to spend five dollars for a locker i couldn't afford a room that was like beyond right and um and then stay all that time i felt like i was going into a maternal womb like space absolutely it was completely sealed off from outside mm -hmm. there were no clocks mm -hmm. it was dark there was music all the time and there was this sort of like um uh it was sort of zombie like wandering around up down looking pacing it was trance like mm -hmm. it kind of induced a certain kind of trance you like i said you lost track of time i felt safe there mm -hmm. and warm because the streets were so dangerous well sure yeah yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I had never tried a bathhouse until I read uh, Cleve Jones's book, When We Rise. Um, but he described the necessity of a bathhouse because he was living on the streets. Huh? He had run away from home. And he described the community space of, of staying there all night and what it felt like to walk the halls. Even when you're not cruising, you're just walking and exploring and meeting people and making friends. And I realized I had to try it. And it, it is still, to this day, exactly that feeling. They're not built like palaces anymore. They don't make them like that now. Oh. But it's still that same womb-like, mm. losing, losing track of time in a way that a casino can't give you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different kind of Right. Well, you can't lose track of time in a casino in a way. But, um, and it's obsessive. But yeah, I mean, at times, like, uh, would travel and stay overnight in the bathhouse because it was the cheapest place to stay. Yeah. What were you and your friends talking about when it came to the debate about shutting down the bathhouses when AIDS came along? So, um, you know, again, now I know more backstory um, about it and I understand it. Uh, myself and the people that I knew uh, felt like the bathhouses are where we could educate people. They will come. There'll be condoms. There'll be posters. There'll be signage. There could even be workshops uh, uh, and education there. And uh, I kept going. Brad and I kept going. Um, and we didn't have sex with people anymore. We just went there for the dark and the steam and to sit around. We had a Christmas dinner in the bathhouse. Really? Yeah, we made all these things from the Chez Panisse cookbook and took them in our room and opened the door and shared them with people. Oh, my God. You know? That's adorable. Um... But at that point, they were fairly empty and there was very little sex. What I didn't know was that um, how irresponsible the owners of the uh, clubs and the, the sex clubs, which were not like, didn't have saunas, but you just walked around in them, and the bathhouses, they didn't want education. They wouldn't have it. Uh, and um, uh, that was what Ed Harry tried. Uh, to get them to uh, work around safe sex and education. But they, they just resisted it. And uh, in the end, if it had been done in 1982, it would have made a difference. By the time it was finally done, uh, half of the gay men in San Francisco were infected, and all of them were beginning to understand what they needed to do to protect themselves. Can we talk about Randy Schiltz's book and the band played on? Right. Well, I mean, it has its critics. I mean, it had its critics from day one. Mm -hmm. I haven't read the book. I am so offended by the title of the book that I don't think I could read the book. The author is offensive enough. But Just. I think it was important that the band did play on, mm -hmm. like on the Titanic. You know, you, 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 there's got to be music in the presence of tragedy. Not that denies the reality of the tragedy, but that provides the community and the hope that, that you need. So I was very offended by that, and I was very offended by what I've been told about the first couple of chapters about the Canadian. Oh, yeah. That seems right. Intensely, it's one of intensely homophobic. In some ways, it's a impressive piece of journalism. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but um, other things that he did were just 
weird and creepy, like this patient zero story that he kind of really made up、um, and then really pushed, like、uh, like he needed to have、um, a, 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 a bad character, an、mm-hmm. evil character、Someone、in it. Someone to blame for all this. Yeah, he was、um, very much about closing the bathhouses. Um, I sense that he was coming from a place of guilt about his own sexuality.、Um, uh, in that, the book is weird because he was a, a player in these events, but in the book he just refers to a reporter asked the question at the press conference. A young re- reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. He doesn't even he doesn't acknowledge his own role <laughs> in、um, influencing events.、Mm. So it's just kind of weird and dishonest in that way. There's things that should be、um, appreciated about him. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah he did a lot of great work too. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But he was、um, he was like the Alice B. Toklas version of a gay journalist. He was <laughs> oriented towards the mainstream.、Um, yeah. As you compare him to somebody like、um, you know who I、um, interviewed,、um, Randy Alfred. Who was always a community reporter、mm-hmm. uh, and writing for an audience of readers that were、uh, LGBTQ community and/or progressive readers.、Mm-hmm. All right, shifting gears just a bit. I was just interviewing Rumi Misabu, the performer in Coquette, for the bonus podcast on Patreon, and we were talking about monogamy and gay marriage. And he said that young people are often shocked when he says that he doesn't see gay marriage as a top of the list priority. So let's talk about that. What are your feelings on how it became gay marriage became the focus of the movement? <clears throat> right.、Um, I was、uh, a critic of it、um, as it was coming up. I was not even like big deal about domestic partnership. Brad and I never did that. We wouldn't have done. Marriage. We both came from divorced families. We wanted to find something better.、Uh, so I saw it in terms of a, a desire to assimilate and to imitate、um, heterosexual people. At the time it first came up and was、um, debated, <clears throat> I tended to see it as a middle class issue.、Uh, people who had jobs with benefits wanted their partners to be able to get benefits. But what about people who have jobs without any benefits? What does this do for them? Uh, I modify that because that shouldn't be discounted. That is a big deal,、uh, and in the epidemic,、um, lots of people didn't have insurance and they couldn't get it because of, of a rule about pre-existing conditions. So that ability meant and means a lot.、Um, but as Harry Britt said when I interviewed him.、Uh, Said marriage, my son. It's not a social justice arrangement.、Mm-hmm. Thinking in terms of the whole long history of it、mm-hmm. uh, as a, a thing about property and contr- men's control over women and children. Yeah, he calls it a sacrament. It's a sacrament, and we need to get rid of sacramentalism in cult in our society.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and、um, but I see that it、uh, mobilized middle class people、uh, to come out and to fight for something and to support causes. Um, now I see what it means to people personally. I guess、um, it's meaningful. They rush out and do it. Two or three years later, they're divorcing and fighting over property. <laughs>、uh, you know, the domestic partner idea of Harry's was to set up、uh, the possibility of a different kind of relationship institution based more on 
mutuality and equality. Did you see domestic partnerships as an improvement on traditional marriage? Um, I didn't necessarily see that. I saw it as a poor second cousin of real marriage, <laughs> which neither of which I thought was a big priority. Mm. Now I'm different, but I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Me neither. No, you're breaking my heart. Oh, we're not going to get married. No, I had a ring here. Oh, my God. Well, I will take the ring. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I've already what? licked the bubble gum off of it, but here you go. Oh, that's fine. I guess I won't go look for a pawn shop then. Okay. <laughs> Big thanks to our fabulous sponsors. The Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. The One Archives Foundation. The GLBT Historical Society. The James C. Hormel LGBTQIA Center at the San Francisco Public Library. You got it. (laughs) Oh, Smiter. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. The Making Gay History Podcast. Shaping San Francisco. And Lady Joey Kane and our fiscal sponsor, Calamus. And everyone who supported the show on Indiegogo. Especially those on the highest tier, including Susan Gray, a.k.a. Marianne Singleton. Sam Tupperman-Gelfont and Pat Gorley. Sharon P. Johnson, with big hugs. And an anonymous, longtime supporter of Queer Serial. Thanks, Mattachino. This podcast is produced with the support of the Murray Hong Family Trust, in honor of the legacy of Stephen O. Murray. And thanks to Cass Britton at the Archives of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You can support the sisters at thesisters.org. And thanks to Anchor SF for providing a fantastic recording studio for the podcast. Special thanks also to Daniel Nicoletta for providing photos and Harvey Milk's complete audio will. Audio is used courtesy of the GLBT Historical Society, KPIX-TV, and KQED San Francisco. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening! Very cute.